0: It's Muppeturgy with a very special episode about the Candace Bergen episode of The Muppet Show! Welcome back, everyone. I'm
1: David Levy, and here with me today are... Michal Richardson. Adam Grossworth.
2: And Christy Bauer.
1: We actually have some corrections and additions this week.
3: I have a
2: feeling that
3: we have perhaps misunderstood the question.
1: We've crossed the Sandy Duncan Rubicon. This may mean nothing to you, but back when we first started recording, we... uh, First, we guessed at what Disney Plus's order would be, and then Disney Plus changed the order um, after The Muppet Show was up for a few days. So among our first few episodes that we recorded was Sandy Duncan, which was like the second episode originally and then became the 14th episode. So it feels like a lifetime ago that we we recorded that. And I know we have referenced it several times as a thing that happened in the past that you all have not heard yet. Now you've heard it. It's very (laughs) exciting. I hope it was good. I don't remember, and I think we've gotten better at this since then. So, thank you for bearing with us while we did that. So, today we are talking about Season 1, Episode 15 of The Muppet Show. Uh, This was taped on August 10th and 11th, 1976, and it aired on November 29th, 1976 in New York. It was the 11th episode aired two weeks after the Florence Henderson episode, which will be relevant later. If you look at the show notes, you know that I I like to look at the New York Times archives for um, fun 70s-tastic ads for the episodes. There wasn't one this week, but in the TV listing the episode of mod that will follow the Muppet Show on Channel Two had a description in parentheses: "Episode about wife swapping." Nothing else had a description; just just that one, and that's all it said. It wasn't like warning or anyway. And then there's mod You think that's a warning or an enticement? I, you know, I think they didn't specify, so so take it as you will. And I appreciate special it.
4: episode. About the the tough
1: topic I feel of like, wife swapping. I feel like every episode of Mod is a very special episode. And <laughs> looking at the TV listings from 1976 every week makes me want to watch Mod. And then there's Mod! And then there's, Maud. And then there's Maud. That uncompromising enterprise and anything but tranquilizer on right right Mod! But that's not why we're here.
3: <laughs> to introduce our guest star, that's what I'm here to do. So it really makes me happy to to you.
0: Depending on how old, gay, or female you are, you might know Candace Bergen from Murphy Brown, Miss Congeniality, Boston Legal, Sex in the City, or as the daughter of ventriloquist and future Muppet Show guest star Edgar Bergen. As the daughter of two celebrities, her mom was fashion model Frances Bergen. Candace got her show business start appearing with her dad on the radio. In the 60s, she followed in her mother's footsteps as a model, appearing on the cover of Vogue many times. In 1966, she made her screen debut in The Group, directed by Lena Horne's son-in-law, Sidney Lumet. She was in a string of mostly unremarkable films throughout the 60s and 70s. She was also a political activist at that time. She participated in a famous yippie prank in 1967 when she and Abby Hoffman and a bunch of others threw dollar bills onto the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, which led to a temporary shutdown. Uh, She was involved in the McGovern campaign uh, and was a notable feminist. She was a frequent host on Saturday Night Live. She was the first woman to host the show, the first host to do a second show, and the first woman to join the Five Timers Club, which she reached in 1990. I found it interesting, because we discussed the film Love Story a few weeks ago, that she was in the sequel to Love Story, Oliver's Story from 1978. I did not know there was a sequel. Thanks, Wikipedia. As gets mentioned in this episode of The Muppet Show, she began taking photographs and started exhibiting them in the 70s. In 1980, she married French film director Louis Malle. They had one daughter together, uh, and they remained married until he passed away in 1995. In 1988... She took on the lead role in Murphy Brown, which was a sitcom about a TV news show, sort of like 60 Minutes. The show ran for 10 seasons, which is pretty unbelievable to me, uh, wrapping up in 1998. She was nominated for the Emmy Award seven times and won five. And after her fifth win, she declined future nominations, saying other people should get a chance. After Murphy Brown, uh, she was in a bunch of films, uh, comedy films, most notably Miss Congeniality in 2000. She was in three episodes of Sex and the City, quite memorably, as Enid Frick, Carrie Bradshaw's editor at Vogue. In 2005, she joined the cast of Boston Legal as Shirley Schmidt, a founding partner of the law firm Crane Poole and Schmidt. Uh, She was in that show for five seasons and received two Emmy nominations for Outstanding Supporting Actress in a Drama Series. Most recently, she did a one-season reboot of Murphy Brown, The Less Said About That, The Better, uh, and she's been in some other great films. Uh, I really liked her in Book Club. What was the film she was in this year that was on HBO? Uh, it was
1: um, it's called Let Them All Talk. It's um, Steven Soderbergh, uh, and it's it's kind of great. It's I don't really want to say too much about it. it. They filmed it on a cruise ship, and it's largely improvised. And I there was a great review of it on a podcast, and I forget which one that, that said I really liked this movie, and I would have liked it much better if it had had a script. Um, and that's kind of where I land on it. But she is great in it. The whole cast is great. And it's worth watching just for that. If you have HBO max. So I, I mean, I fully like, I watched all 10 seasons, of Murphy Brown, or maybe that can't be true because I was in college for the last four, but whatever. I, I was a big Murphy Brown fan in middle school, (laughs) which tells you a lot about me. Um, but yeah, it was huge in my, in my house. Um, and, and I know I had seen, i must have seen this show episode too—but like that's my like core memory of her. And also, I feel like at the same time, um, SNL reruns were a thing, like maybe on VH1, and they were cut. They were maybe they were a half hour. They certainly were not ninety minutes, right? They were like probably an hour with commercials, and they were like syndication commercials. So they were—they were all only the good stuff. <laughs> um, and I remember so clearly this one sketch with her and Gilda Radner where she calls Gilda Radner's character by the wrong name. And Gilda Radner stays in character, but makes fun of her for it. And Candace Bergen just completely breaks and starts laughing and almost falls off the couch that they're sitting on. Um, and I don't know why that has stuck with me, but it's a—it's just a really good memory of Candace Bergen laughing. And it, it, has sort of, it has brought me joy. We'll put a clip in the show notes.
0: We should talk about the fact, you know, Murphy Brown wasn't just big in your house, but it was also like a national phenomenon. Well, yeah. It was big in my house too, but it was also the fact that she was playing this very feminist forward character on a show that was set up to be about both sort of the, the battle of the sexes and also the generation gap, because part of the show is that on the first episode, they get a new producer who is a much younger man and, and Murphy doesn't like being told what to do by someone who's younger or someone who's a man. And, you know, this was during uh, the Bush era and, and, When the show decided to make Murphy a single mother by choice, that erupted into a national conversation slash controversy because Dan Quayle, the vice president, spoke out against Murphy Brown as though this was like a horrible, immoral choice. Uh, And it was just all over the news. And
4: And as though she was a real person. Right. She was a fictional character engaging with real-time, real-life politics.
0: And you know the news cycle then was much slower. Like there weren't twenty-four hour news channels, so this story stayed in the press for. It felt like a long time. It might have been a week. Who knows? But uh, you know, I think that now when people think about Dan Quayle, they remember that he couldn't spell potato at a spelling bee and he picked a fight with Murphy
1: Brown and lost.
2: What a legacy! <laughs> <laughs>
1: Why don't you get me started? So, Christy, what were your impressions of this episode?
2: I think it, it overall it's pretty fun. I I appreciated the uh the gentle topicality of it. In spite of how dated it is and you know, I I don't think they necessarily are as successful w- with the uh the more topical things that they're trying to do, but I do at least appreciate when a, a swing for the fences is a swing towards the right side of history, even if they don't (laughs) entirely know what they're doing. You know, I thought it was fun to see uh, Candace Bergen in a pre Murphy Brown mode, since that's almost exclusively what I associate with her. And, you know, my overall impression of her as guest was that she's green, but game. And I prefer that to whatever the hell Peter Ustinov was doing a few episodes ago. You know, it's, it's, it's episodes not classic in any possible way but you know it's 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 pretty delightful i had fun
1: yeah i agree the sum of the parts really worked for me even when the parts didn't like i feel like i'm gonna wind up sounding a lot more negative on this episode than i actually was watching it like i really enjoyed it and i think a lot of that comes from my affection for candace bergen but uh, i also really enjoyed the backstage plot this week maybe because it isn't really a plot we'll get to we'll get to it it's more of a runner but yeah it it I was happy about it, even though I don't think I like had a, a full on laugh out loud moment. Michal, I feel like you might be in a slightly different direction.
4: Yeah, I mean, I there was a lot that I appreciated about this episode. There were a couple of the musical numbers that I really enjoyed. I enjoy seeing Candace Bergen. Like seeing her just on screen takes me to a place that makes me happy. So even if she didn't, she wasn't given all that much to do, but I enjoyed what she did. Um, And I appreciate uh, whatever swings at feminism they were taking. I appreciate that their uh, this running gag was laid on a bit thick, even for me, but (laughs) I I appreciate a good running gag, even when it gets to be a bit much. The episode overall, like, yeah, it was fine. It kind of slid right out of my brain and made no impression on me. Um, There was one moment in between when we were Transitioning from, I think it was between At the Dance and the panel, I think it was when I saw that there was going to be another freaking panel, I just wrote down the word sigh, and I was like, and I think I also wrote down, <laughs> I think I see what Adam is getting at with, <laughs> I I am also getting a little tired of season one, and then I did the math to find out what percentage of season one we had completed watching. Or, well, yes, it's, we have watched 0.62 and a half <laughs> or 0.625 of season one, 62 and percent. And we have 37 and percent of season one to go. That's where I'm at. <laughs>
0: <laughs> David, what math did you do? <laughs> well, I didn't do math, but I, I do think about this in terms of like, for me, the experience of season one is the experience of watching the pieces come together and seeing how things grow and change over the season. And, What I really liked about this episode is the way that you can really feel the guest star's input into the final product. When Kermit introduces her, he talks about how she's not just an actress, but she's a model and she's a photographer. And then we get sketches about her being a model and a sketch about her being a photographer. And, you know, she's not a singer, but they figured out a way to put her in two different musical numbers one where she doesn't have to sing and one where she only sort of like kind of a little bit sings but mostly stands around and makes faces while the muppets sing and i just thought like all of those were really clever uses of the guest star that were far more successful than some of the previous episodes that we've watched so uh you know not an all-time great episode but but it was it was good it was fun and and i i like the direction that it's pointing us toward <laughs>
2: So interestingly, among Candace Bergen's many achievements, she's not really a singer, and yet somehow we ended up with a lot of music this week. Our first number is Piggy's Time to Shine. <laughs> what now my love? Now that you me,
3: how can I live. Through another day, watching my dreams,
2: turning
3: to ashes, and my hopes
2: into bits of clay. So this is What Now My Love, which is the English version of a popular French song called Et Maintenant which means and now. Uh, and it was written in 1961 by a composer named uh, Gilbert Bécaud and a lyricist named Pierre Delano. And it's sort of a variation on uh, Ravel's Bolero. And the English lyrics and the title were written by Carl Sigmund. It was a hit in France uh, initially in 1961, and there have been uh, several versions to chart in the u.s including a sunny and share version that went to number 14 in 1966 there was a herb albert and the tijuana brass version elvis performed it as part of his huge uh, aloha from hawaii special that uh, apparently had a live audience of one billion people <laughs> that doesn't even sound possible it, it really doesn't um I just can't imagine 1 billion people doing the same thing at all nowadays. Uh, It's hard to imagine 1 million people doing the same thing. Yeah. It's also uh, worth mentioning that it was recorded by noted Joe Raposo, Stan Frank Sinatra.
0: Um, I'm so glad that we found like a better way to reference Frank Sinatra in every episode (laughs) than how we started.
3: (laughs) This is what they call a running gag.
2: (laughs) Um, yeah, and uh, the the setup of the song is sort of funny. I mean, the the way it looks to me is that Piggy is uh, really feeling her feelings in the uh, the back room of a Pier One Imports. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yeah, so surrounded by a lot of exotic-looking pillows. And there's a, a group of three whatnots that gradually turn into monsters that chase her around. And it's very funny. This was actually, I think, my favorite number of the episode.
0: Can I tell you, I've watched this number so many times over the years. And it was not until I read these notes that I realized that the whatnots change into monsters and that they aren't <laughs> monsters. Like, it's so... S- Subtle isn't the word, but it's it's gradual and it's so well executed that I just didn't put it together that they were transforming. I don't know.
4: You just thought they were kind of chasing her just for kicks and yeah,
0: I, I, yeah. I just thought it was like like they were gradually more obsessed with her. I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't. Perhaps the storytelling of this number is a little unclear. A little bit.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I mean. You don't need much storytelling when you've got Miss Piggy just luxuriating all over the furniture. And now that I know that it's a peer one imports, this <laughs> <laughs> vastly improves the story. She's luxuriating all over somebody else's furniture.
1: Well, and the, you know, <laughs> even without the transformation, the, the the acting of the backup singers and of Piggy, like the, the intent is clear, even if you didn't notice that they grow fangs. There's a great bit of, of puppetry with... Uh, I had never noticed before right, as she's luxuring it on the furniture. And we talked, we talked in the Sandy Duncan episode, it's in the past now about um, Kermit sitting on Sandy's leg. Right. And how real that looks, even though we know he can't really be doing it. And so she's on this couch and then she gets up from the couch and the fabric of her dress, I, I assume is covering Frank Oz's arm, which is right in front of the couch. And she's not really on it. And, not only that, when she gets up, she pushes herself up with her arm, which is such a great detail. These are the things you notice when you make gifs of everything. But it's it's just so nicely done that like they didn't have to go that hard and they did.
2: Muppet Wiki points out that this was the first major solo singing performance by Piggy, uh, as performed by Frank Oz. She did have a solo in Temptation with the Glee Club, but uh, that was a, a Richard Hunt Piggy performance. And then, uh, hey, won't you play another somebody done somebody wrong song? Yeah, you can even feel it coming out of your mouth that that's the longest title to ever be a hit. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's like, just call it somebody wrong song and and, and call it a day. It, it was a UK spot. So uh, this is the first one that American audiences would have seen.
0: I wonder if, and this maybe ties into misogyny and feminism, but do you think that Frank and Richard think that their voice for Piggy is the same and that's why they keep (laughs) interchanging so far into the season? Do you think they
4: think that all pigs look and sound alike, so it doesn't matter?
0: Or that they just think that, like, oh, whatever, it's a falsetto voice. Like, that that sounds the same. I don't know. like Because we've now seen several times when they go out of their way to have the correct... Voice for a male Muppet, even when it's a different puppeteer. In fact, later on in this episode, we will see that when uh, Rolf and Kermit are seen together. So, like, why is it that they think they can get away with these two, like, very different voices for Piggy when they would never do that for Kermit or Rolf or or Fozzie or anyone else?
2: Oh, or, uh, you know, pretty much every single performer on the staff having done Mildred by the end of the season.
1: Yeah. Although it's not nearly as noticeable with Mildred. So I wonder if they do think they're getting away with it (laughs) and the piggy voice is harder. The DVD did, did have uh, a pop-up about uh, during this number, Frank Oz quote, where he he said that he felt piggy wouldn't be funny if performed by a woman because it was such a caricature of femininity. Um, So basically he's saying it's a drag performance though. He wouldn't have said that whenever he gave that interview, I'm sure. And I can sort of buy that. We've been pretty critical, I've been pretty critical of um, the fact that Piggy could just be played by a woman. Um, and I, I sort of buy that argument, but less so when you make the point about the constant switching.
0: I feel the urge to bring up the term bioqueen, but
1: yeah. <laughs> y- yes, it certainly could be done. Speaking of drag queens, Piggy's wig looks terrible in this number, and I just, I just couldn't let it go unremarked.
2: Uh-huh. I also wanted to point out that it, it's interesting that two of Piggy's big solo moments have been with Bolero-esque numbers. Because Temptation uh, is also built on a sort of Bolero tribute rhythm.
0: And if you remember, when we discussed Temptation, we played a clip of this number in our well, episode we, to make that same point. <laughs> oh,
1: yeah. Hmm. we we're, we're smart.
0: I was actually surprised to see this number come up so soon because in my head, it was like much farther in the future, but time, you know, <laughs>
2: <laughs> this is interesting. Um, so I, I had assumed that the, uh, prevalence of, uh, Bolero esque songs, uh, was due to the, the seventies resurgence of interest in Bolero because of the movie 10, but that didn't come out for another couple of years. So they were ahead of the curve. Somehow, somebody there just loved bolero.
0: You know, I knew the Frank Sinatra version of this song first, and he does not use a bolero esque arrangement, even though most other versions of the song do. So this always sounds like weird or wrong to me.
2: All right, so then we go into distinctly yeehaw territory.
0: on the fire.
3: Cook me up some bacon and some beans And go out to the car and change the tire Wash my socks and sew my old blue jeans Come on, baby, you can fill my pipe And then go fetch my slippers Then boil me up another pot of tea Then put another log on the fire babe. come on, tell me why you're leaving.
2: So yeah, without the visual, <laughs> uh, it, it it just sounds like some uh, chauvinism, which is the point. It's 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 meant to be a joke. It's the full title of this song is "Put Another Log on the Fire," the male chauvinist national anthem, uh, and it was uh, written by Shel Silverstein, uh, which uh, surprised and delighted me. It's it was a, a a country hit uh, in 1975, so pretty recent at this point it, uh, peaked at number 21 on the, the hot country singles chart. And it was number three on a, a thing that I have uh, come to learn about in my research uh, for this show that I'm now obsessed with called the bubbling under chart. And it's uh, all of the the songs that don't quite make it to the hot 100 singles chart. Um, and the number of songs on it has like grown and shrank over the years. Uh, it, it, started out as like the 15 songs underneath and like in the 60s it uh you know went to 36 songs and uh nowadays it's uh uh, 25 songs so yeah it's bubbling under at number three evocative name
0: it's a real yeah number three on bubbling under is basically number 103
1: on the hot 100 right (laughs) it's a real missed opportunity to call it like the tepid 25 or something
2: yeah (laughs) I guess they figure it's the thing that's buoying the uh, <laughs> the Hot 100. Um, yeah, so if, if, if you don't know anything about Shel Silverstein, he was a, a writer, poet, cartoonist, songwriter, and playwright. Um, I know him primarily as a poet. Uh, it, he put out several books of poetry for children, uh, including A Light in the Attic and Where the Sidewalk Ends, and a, an absolutely gorgeous book called The Giving Tree. And he uh, had quite a career writing funny and witty country songs, Uh, most notably uh, Johnny Cash's A Boy Named Sue, which won a 1970 Grammy. He uh, was nominated for an Oscar and a Golden Globe for a song called I'm Checking Out from the movie Postcards from the Edge, and is responsible for uh, a couple of songs that surprised me. I I found a great article that we could put in the show notes uh, uh, that was like, 10 country songs that uh, you'll be surprised that Shel Silverstein wrote. And, and this was one of them, but it also included Loretta Lynn's Ones on the Way. And not a country song, but a country rock song. The uh, song, the cover of Rolling Stone by Dr. Hook and the, the Medicine Show. And, and this song, I, I should mention, was recorded by a, a guy named Tom Paul Glazer, who was part of the outlaw country movement in Nashville in the 70s. He recorded and produced and uh, ran in circles with uh, Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings and Jesse Coulter. I guess we should probably talk about the actual setup of the song. So, uh our our friends the the Gogolala Jubilee Jug Band make an appearance, but they're more backup. This is now sung by a, a muppet called the Hillbilly Singer who we haven't seen before, who is sort of like the the weird in between the jug band, the uh country trio, uh Jim Henson, and the weird bigger humanoid muppets. He freaks me out. <laughs> I don't know about you guys. I
1: find his legs very weird, right? He's, he's sitting in a chair and um, he's sort of full size, but he's not a full body puppet. He's um, right. Jim Henson is in or under the chair and the legs are controlled by rods. So the, the legs look like these stuffed, it looks like you just stuffed a pair of overalls with whatever you, you know, pillow stuffing, except then they move. And I, yeah, I find it very strange. <laughs> I don't like it.
2: Yeah. So anyway, so he's singing and uh, Candace Bergen dressed in a sort of like pioneer, like life size American girl doll outfit is uh, doing all the various chores until she reaches her breaking point and uh, rebels and uh, takes off her costume to reveal a feminist t-shirt <laughs> because that's what feminism is, is wearing a t-shirt. And shooting up the men in your life.
4: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: or threatening them. She shoots her
4: way out of his house. He does look very scared, though.
1: We'll get to this more later. But I found the choice to give her essentially two mime sketches a little interesting. But boy, mm. her face is great in this. Both when she's reacting to that first verse, and then when she does leave, like she she points the shotgun at him, and then sort of has this very clear, like you're not worth it, expression on her face, and just blows the door <laughs> off and leaves. Um, <laughs> she's real. She's just really good in a in a scene where she's totally silent, and I I really enjoyed that. I was just happy that after sort of a rocky intro to this episode, which we will talk about later,
0: that this number was situated on like the right side of feminism. (laughs)
1: Because when it started, I wasn't sure it was going to be. (laughs) It's true. It's also a perfect deployment of the Gogolala Jubilee Jug Band as a thing that Candace Bergen fears and needs to get away from.
2: (laughs) (laughs) How dare you? (laughs) I mean, I get it, but how dare you? <laughs> it
4: makes sense that they're this kind of a Greek chorus that just pops through the window to give a little extra backup for what's about to happen. Yeah,
1: they're his friends. They're always hanging out. She doesn't like them. She doesn't want them around. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, she's out of there.
1: Yeah, totally tracks.
2: Yeah, I just have questions about how that relationship started in the first place.
4: I found myself wondering about that, too, and then reminding myself that... uh women who are in situations they need to get out of need to get out of the situation without me judging them. Oh, sorry, this went to a <laughs> <laughs> bit of a dire place.
1: Valid though. It's important. It's, it's, real. Important. it's
4: a conversation it's real. With myself outside of the Candice Bergen episode.
2: <laughs> On a lighter note, we have something completely different for the UK spot.
4: It's not where you start,
3: it's where you finish. And I'm gonna finish. Hey Ralph, Ralph,
0: listen, it's my uncle's favorite song. He says he'd like to hear it one more time, but you only have 20 seconds, alright? Hit it!
3: It's not where you start, it's where you finish. It's not how you go, it's how you land. That's 15 seconds. it's a one shot, they call him a
1: clutch. You're know, the favorite, all he
3: needs is a cut. 10 Your final return will not diminish. And you can find the dream seconds. of the club. It's not where you start, three, it's where like you finish. Two. And I'm going to finish on time.
2: <laughs> so this is a, a recent show tune. Most of the show tunes that we've had have been sort of older, classic-y ones. And uh, this one is from 1973 uh, from a musical called Seesaw. Uh, with music by Cy Coleman and lyrics by Dorothy Fields, one of my favorites. And uh, it was sung in the original production by Tommy Toon, who won the first of his 10 Tonys show off for uh, best performance by a featured actor in a musical in 1974. And both he and this number were apparently late additions to the show during its uh, very rocky out of town tryout. (laughs)
0: It's interesting because the show that is based on Two for the Seesaw also had a famously rocky out-of-town tryout that was written by William Gibson, and he wrote a whole additional book called The Seesaw Chronicles about how hard it was to get that show up, and and it became a big hit. And then when they made a musical out of it, it just like it was not working, and everything that could go wrong did go wrong, and they ended up firing their leading lady out of town and uh, bringing in... Tommy Toon and Michael Bennett, sort of as a, a pair, because uh, they were friends, to come fix the show, and and Michael took over direction and choreography, and Tommy Toon, they basically created like a, a new best friend role uh, to to give the show some more like pizzazz to it and. And it's pretty much understood that Tommy also choreographed his own number, uh, and and I'll find a video of it to put in the show notes because uh, this is like a great showstopper. It's the like the big finish to the to the show, and it's this big joyous number with like a stage full of balloons. Uh, I just I'm also a big Dorothy Fields fan. In fact, I. Uh, for a while, ran a Tumblr called yeah Tumblr dot com. So this clip from the Muppet Show is also very familiar to me because I had shared it on Tumblr many years ago. So I, I will, I'll, I'll leave it there because, like I said, I could go on and on and on.
2: <laughs> yeah, for sure. I, I just, I mean, no, no offense to Cy Coleman. Cy Coleman's great, but uh, I definitely wanted to give Dorothy Fields a shout out as one of the, the few notable w- women writing the, the scores of Broadway musicals in the 20th century. She uh, w- was a lyricist uh, who wrote over 400 songs for Broadway musicals and, and movies. Uh, some of the best-known uh, songs include The Way You Look Tonight, which uh, won her an Oscar, A Fine Romance on the Sunny Side of the Street, I'm in the Mood for Love, and um, she worked w- with a whole bunch of uh, important composers: Jerome Kern, Cy Coleman, uh, Irving Berlin, and uh, yeah, she, this was her last uh, Broadway show as she died in 1974. So, oh,
4: fuck yeah, Dorothy Fields. I have a question about the uh, the timing here. Is this how we know that they are actually making a TV show and not a live theatrical show? When Scooter comes in and says, "You know, you only have thirty seconds, or you have fifteen seconds left."
1: Oh, you're asking for is that so because much they logic. know there's
4: another show coming on?
0: <laughs> no, i no because that can also happen in live theater. Like if there's another act that is getting ready and they're not ready yet, that that could be why he needed to fill that space. And then uh, when it's like, "Oh, you only have thirty seconds left," it could be that the other act is ready and we can't run over the show runs long, then the union musicians might need overtime pay, which Kermit definitely oh, like cannot there's afford. a union in this
1: theater. <laughs> I'm on.
4: But yeah, that to me feels, well, it, in my experience, it feels more like a radio thing rather right. than a theater thing. As, That's because as you've as never
0: had the uh, manager of 54 Below yelling at you that they're going to turn off your mics if you don't finish your closing number in time for them to get the audience out for the next show to get in on time.
4: (laughs) That's true. That has never happened to me.
1: (laughs) Definitely has never happened to me either. uh (laughs) (laughs) Uh-huh. We have talked about the um, musical numbers being um, pre-recorded and I have no idea if this is or not, but this sounded and this felt so live to me. Um, And I think I've mentioned before, there's a behind the scenes photo that I have somewhere. I need to find it of, a piano play, like a live piano player in the background, but I think that was for of uh, uh, with Rolf in the foreground. I think that's more for when they do sketches where like where they're talking and playing the piano. but this this seemed very real to me. All of the performance elements felt very live and natural.
0: Yes, it feels live, but also. You know, Jim
1: Henson got to start doing puppetry, that lip-sync. Oh yeah, he's really so. good. I'm <laughs> he's really good at making me believe things that aren't real are real. Like, let me be clear. But, like, um, but also, in a, uh, when I often find the UK spots kind of boring, I I found this one quite delightful.
0: I was surprised and disappointed that Rolf did not get Bruce Forsyth's grand piano and was back in his Aww, Right? Yeah. Miniature upright.
2: He'll get there. Pianos are heavy and hard to move. Like, you would think that once it was there, they would have just left it. Alas.
0: I'm not convinced that the UK spots were shot at the same time as the rest of the episode. I think they probably had a couple of days where they just shot a season's worth of UK spots, and that might be part of it.
2: So our next number is a- another uh, feat of mime by Candace Bergen. <laughs> or face of mime. The way that it makes me happy, whatever the time of
3: place, I find in old what yeah. I find yeah. when I yeah. look. I mean, my mom, that does not look like her. I told you to paint her. Ah, oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Oh, yes. So uh, this is a song called Look at That Face, uh, yet another show tune uh, from a musical called The Roar of the Grease, Paint the Smell of the Crowd uh, from 1964, words and music by Leslie Bricus and Anthony Newley. And it drives me bonkers that I don't know who wrote uh, what in oh. their collaboration.
0: Bricus writes lyrics.
2: Well, he well he does now. But what's interesting is all of the stuff that is uh, attributed to them is attributed to them equally.
0: Hmm. Oh, interesting.
2: Yeah. This is a thing that I've been trying to get to the bottom of for years because I have a life.
0: Um, (laughs) My theory is that if the lyrics are good, Anthony Newley wrote them. And if they're bad, Leslie Brickus wrote them.
2: I, uh, yeah, seconded. Uh, uh i've I've seen jekyll and hyde many times um yeah uh (laughs) yeah so uh, this show is the source of several really well-known songs including uh who can i turn to and feeling good and a wonderful day like today this this one's a little bit more of a deep cut and it's being sung by a muppet named andre who we never see again uh and yet he has a name which I mean, why wouldn't he have a name? But
0: well, where does that name come from? Because they don't ever say it on the show.
2: Yeah, I I don't know. I I found it uh, on Muppet Wiki. But yeah, Andre. And um, he he's a, a French art teacher Muppet, uh, performed by Peter Friedman. And this is the first time that a Peter Friedman performance has sounded definitively like Broadway's Peter Friedman to me.
1: I agree. I I blame the accent or credit the accent.
2: Yeah. I mean, I've seen I've seen
1: him in many shows at this point, but he is he is. Always and forever, Tata and ragtime, Um, and it's a very different accent. But I think there's just something about Peter Friedman in an accent.
0: Oh, I actually think that it's that he's allowed to sort of full-throated belt in this, where he's like he's doing an accent instead of doing like a character voice. So it's more his real voice.
1: I mean, you're probably right instead of my jokey answer, but you know, (laughs) I was going to do my Tata impression, and now I'm now I'm not going to.
0: I'm
4: sure you'll have occasion to use it again. (laughs)
1: Let's hope. Or let's hope not, maybe.
2: So yeah, so uh, Andre, whoever he may be, uh, is teaching a, a, a life painting class to various Muppets, uh, in- including Piggy, Animal, as we heard, uh, Gonzo, Bunsen, How You Do, a couple of Frackles, and Mildred, and Candace is the uh, model.
1: The, jo- the joke wouldn't work as well if the model weren't human, I think, right? Because it's, it's none of them, but they all paint a painting that looks like a Muppet looks like themselves, but you know, they're all Muppets, but it does seem like a weird choice to have the guest star. Just, she doesn't just sit there. She is performing. She is reacting, but I don't know. This seems like a song that Charles Aznavour could have sung with a Muppet as the model and the joke still would have worked, but she's a
0: model. Like in real life, she's yes. a model. So like, you know, it's like you have a singer, you want her to sing on the show. You have a model, you want her to model Fair. on the show.
4: I understand that. You have a Kipling?
0: You want him to Kipple on the show? I don't know. I've never kippled.
4: But I, I would have liked to see it go farther because it is cute that she does little understated things. Like when he says, look at those eyes and look at that nose, she she crosses her eyes and does a little nose wiggle flare thing. But those are like the only time she gets to end. Like you see her kind of eating grapes um, when he goes around and looks at the paintings. But I, I think that this was meant to be – Funnier for her as well, but she was busier. She was busy just being a model. And this was after we had introduced her at the top, as she's not just another pretty face, but now we're going to just make her sit here and talk about her face, which it just feels like a, a
0: strange choice.
4: Feminism! <laughs> Feminism!
0: You said you wanted it to go farther. Like what? Like a live nude model? Like. Yeah. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> I just
4: meant like she the joke is they say, look at those eyes. And then they just, the camera just looks down the barrel of her nose into her eyes. And that, she could have done more funny things as jokes. Yeah. I she, she can do comedy.
1: I wonder if it like, if it's one Muppet too many, because like, I wonder if they had more planned for her to do. And they ran out of time when they were, when they were editing it, like to get to each painting joke, because we know that she, I mean, from the, from the country sketch, like, we know that she can actually be very funny without saying a word. And if there were mm-hmm. more cuts to her doing stuff, because she's really in the background for most of it, because the paintings are the joke. It's a good joke. I like the joke. And,
4: uh, yeah, somebody painted those paintings, and they wanted them to get shown.
2: Exactly. <laughs> and well done. Like, they're, they're fun and funny paintings, but... I wonder where they are now. And we close with a sing-along. And my
3: problems have all gone There is no one to deride me
2: <clears throat> I'm, I'm here me. Because you have to have friends, you see, Gonzo The feelings are so strong Yes, you've got to have friends To last that whole day long I had some friends, but they're gone So, yeah, we're uh, in major uh, Marie's crisis mode (laughs) (laughs) with uh, Friends, uh, which is a a Bette Midler song um, that is uh, sort of known as her theme song. It was written by uh, Buzzy Linhart and Mark Muji Klingman. (laughs) Those are some 70s names. (laughs) <laughs> two, uh, two guys with very eclectic musical backgrounds. Buzzy was originally from the Greenwich Village folk scene of the 60s and then later went on to be a prog rock solo artist and an actor in the 70s. <laughs> and Muji uh, was a member of Todd Rundgren's Utopia and later went on to be Bette Midler's bandleader, uh, uh, t- taking over from Barry Manilow. And this song uh, hit number 40 on the the Hot 100, so it did not bubble under. It
4: bubbled above. It broke the skin. Aw. Gross. (laughs) Nobody else thought bubbling under sounded like a skin condition.
1: Nope.
2: (laughs) 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 Sorry. Oh, oh, you ruined it, uh, yeah, uh, and uh Friends uh has popped up in some unusual places. It uh popped up in the final scene and closing credits of the 1973 movie the last of Sheila, which is notable for uh, being co-written by one Steven Sondheim
0: and one Tony Perkins.
2: <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, was sung by the 1974-75 cast of Zoom during the end credits of the show. Apparently, it's in Shrek. I don't remember this, but apparently Donkey performed it as well. That
4: doesn't sound familiar at all. And right? I watched Shrek many times in the 90s. I had never noticed before how weird these lyrics are. I had friends, but well, they're gone. You have to have friends. It's important. Well, I mean, the like the... The,
1: i had a friend now
0: she's gone. that's the part yeah that's the, yeah. That's
1: the part that yeah had as a friend but they're gone something came with them away and from the dust till the dawn here is where i'll stay what and that's after is it meant to be a duet or has it ever been a duet do we know because if like if you read them it feels like it's two people it's it's like the gonzo verse where he's sad and then somebody telling him it's okay and then somebody else is sad i don't know it's very weird And I never noticed until that moment. Certainly, the
0: Midler version is not a duet. And she recorded two different, like on her album that has the song, it appears twice. There's like the single version and the album version, or like the up tempo version and the ballad version.
2: It also doesn't help that uh, when it starts out, it feels like Candace Bergen's about to like Rex Harris in it and turn it
1: into a monologue. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and also, like, where did Gonzo come from? Like, we talked last week, two weeks ago for our listeners about um, being green. And how strangely motivated that is, but it is motivated. We have not seen Gonzo all episode and suddenly he's very, very sad for some reason. I don't understand what that is. Well, happening.
0: we've talked about how he's perpetually sad in season one. Sure. So you do wonder if there was like a different backstage plot that
1: got replaced. In the last yeah, movie. like I wonder if, if there will be a backstage plot later that explains this and they swapped them.
2: This reminded me a lot of uh, the Florence Henderson happy together, mm-hmm. just in the sort of drunk- piano bar sing-along vibe of it. That seems to be like their other trope. Like if we're not going to end in the field of despair or whatever we (laughs) called it, the field of
1: angst, the forest of of despair,
2: despair, (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, then, you know, we're going to end sing-along time.
4: It's a feel-good song and it made me feel good. And I really enjoyed it, even if it didn't make sense. It's not as bulletproof a song as Happy Together. So it's not as memorable
0: to take a song that Bette Midler sang and give it to a non-singer like Candace Bergen isn't doing anybody any favors. Like Candace does a great job with what she has, but they could have they could have chosen a song that maybe didn't invite such direct comparisons. Like this is not exactly a song that's uh, lends itself to the kind of Sprech singer that she does.
2: Ready?
3: 3 2
4: one! Fire! Alright, let's talk about the backstage plot, or plots, or themes, or one theme and one runner. The, the running gag here is, well, we saw this exact same joke in the Florence Henderson episode, but here it is again. Uh,
3: uh, wire for Kermit the Frog! Wire for Kermit the Frog! Uh, oh, are uh, you Kermit the Frog! Of course I am. Wire for you. (laughs) Ah, Cute. Cute bit. Oh, Ah, oh, I love a good running gag.
4: (laughs) I mean, it is cute. It's cute to see Kermit with a little wire hanger hanging from his face. It's cute that then Fozzie delivers a letter for him, which is an adorable little letter R. It's cute that he says he has a note for Kermit, which then the little flap in the door flaps open and it's three of those little frogs out of the piano singing a G sharp. Or Fozzie says it's a G sharp. Did anybody check? I didn't check this week. Okay, well, we'll take their word for it. <sighs> this That was the funniest of these running gag jokes, I felt. Well, until we get to the, the very end when Kermit gets back at him. But uh, it's not as funny as Animal helping Lena Horne find her key. That was very funny. This is just okay.
1: <laughs> well, and then the, the last one feels actually cruel.
4: Yeah, flower for Kermit the Frog, and then he mm-hmm. dumps a bag of flour on. I worry about Kermit as a character, and I worry about the puppet.
1: I have never been more aware in my life of the fact that Kermit does not have eyelids. Yes, I was just thinking that. I recognize that very few puppets have eyelids, but his eyes are right on top of his head. He got flour all over them.
4: It's worrying. And Miss Piggy takes it to heart and punches Fozzie, which he deserves. I uh, don't usually have it in for Fozzie, but uh, uh, we have a very cute wrap up of the show as the the end to this running gag. Thanks, Fozzie. I had a terrific time.
3: It, it's just that I'm a little worried that maybe Kermit's upset with you. You know what I mean? Oh, no, 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 no. He loves running gags. Oh, yeah. Fr- uh, pie for Fozzie the Bear. Pie for Fozzie the Bear. Are you Fozzie the Bear? No. <laughs> Good. I got a pie for you anyway.
1: <laughs> Look what you did! <laughs> <said!
3: laughs> Look what you did! You did that to the, the lady, the You did too,
4: lady. <laughs> What, what you're does. not seeing when you listen to this is that Kermit takes two shots with the pie, one hits Fozzie Square in the face, but there's not much pie left on his face. So he hits him again, and the the bits of pie fly everywhere, or bits of crazy foam, which we know don't damage the puppets. The jury's still out on flour. Um, but the foam flies everywhere, and some of it hits Candice Bergen just in the arm. She doesn't get pied in the face, but... Fozzie reacts perfectly
1: and and she what you did. And she laughs. She is having the best time. (laughs)
4: Yeah. Candace Bergen breaking there. And she's, she's been like holding her hand over her face, that whole sketch because she knows she's about to break. And then when she finally does, I think that's the only genuine laugh that they got out of me. this whole episode.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Kermit also does it, you know, again, very good at making things that aren't real look real. Kermit, when Kermit realizes that the pie, did not deploy correctly. Like Kermit looks at Fozzie, looks at the pie, looks back at Fozzie and then swings again. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and like, I, I understand that Jim Henson is looking at a monitor underneath, but like, you know, he's, he is having Kermit react for him in a way that is both real and very cute and very funny. And it it, it was great.
4: Yeah. Their instincts are beautiful and fully formed. And Kermit is definitely his own person independently of Jim. It yeah. feels like. That was the backstage plot, kind of. It was a running gag where Fozzie just yells funny all the time, which that uh, telling people that your joke is funny is not funny. We've talked about this before.
1: It's true. I feel like when I was five, yelling funny in Fozzie's voice was probably a thing that I did, though. So it it resonated.
0: (laughs) It's weird that they tried so hard to make all these other things become uh, catchphrases like the cute bit and whatever else. But that, like, funny is the one that seems to have stuck.
4: I mean, or waka waka waka. Has he said that yet? I don't think so. No. Fascinating. If anybody was inclined to try this out, when a, a check arrived in the mail for my spouse, I tried it out on him and said, "Check for you." And he was, and then I drew a check in the air. What, maybe I should have tried a bag of flour instead. He might have been more amused by that.
0: Why don't you do that this week and report back? <laughs>
2: Well, presumably he has eyelids. <laughs> he does have eyelids. Last yes. I checked.
1: <laughs> also, they'd get all over the floor. Somebody would have to clean it up. Don't do, don't yeah. do the flower joke guys. Uh, right. we have not talked about the clothes in this episode because again, we are not a fashion podcast, but, uh, <laughs> Ms. Bergen's outfit in, in this final scene is fantastic. And I think she may have also worn it on that Saturday night live that I watched. It was fantastic there too.
4: It's seventies tastic. There's a lot going on there. Yeah. So the theme of this episode, aside from that running gag, is that they are taking a a swing at uh, being a feminist show.
3: And she's not just another pretty face besides being an actress. She's a top photographer, a writer, a world traveler, what you'd call a well-rounded person. <laughs> you can say that again. <laughs> woo-woo, woo-woo. Listen, you clowns, we're not going to have any of those male chauvinist pig jokes while Miss Fergan is out here. Mm-hmm. I'm tired of any kind of pig joke.
1: Um, Piggy,
3: my love, my life. Never mind that jazz. Listen, turkey. Miss Bergen said I should stand up for my rights. Either I open the show or Miss Bergen and I walk. Uh, uh, well, uh, uh, okay, okay. You can open the show, Piggy. I,
0: I think it's hard to remember that Ms. as an honorific was brand new at this time. Like Ms. Magazine started in 1972 when I was in school, like in the eighties and even into the nineties, I remember it being taught as still this like new weird option that some people might choose if they don't want to reveal whether or not they're married. But, but that's like a new weird thing that, that people might not be comfortable with.
4: Yeah. That, that makes sense. That's helpful context. Um,
0: it doesn't make this joke any more comfortable.
1: It's still gross, but it... And it's, it's very of a time. And it actually, it, it feels in character for Piggy. Like, that it's a thing that she has just learned because she's more old-fashioned. And, because I don't think Piggy is making fun of it. I think Piggy is, like, getting the hang of it. I think the show is making fun of it, is making fun of Piggy getting the hang of it, right? But I, I think, sort of, in in-world... Like piggy is like oh I learned this new thing and I want to use it and because she's piggy she doesn't do it quite right. Um, again, it's very of its time. It has not aged super well, but I I kind of get what they were going for. I think I hope.
2: I'm definitely going to add never mind that jazz. Listen Turkey uh, to my <laughs> vocabulary immediately.
4: <laughs> I can't wait for it to come up in conversation.
2: <laughs> I've got to test drive it.
4: Given all that, and given the feminist t-shirt and uh, put another log on the fire, given the that she just sits there modeling for a look at that face, um, I I don't know whether we've succeeded by 1976 standards uh, in this attempt at feminism. Maybe after we talk about another couple sketches, we'll have a better idea. Shall we talk about At the Dance? The At the Dance is again set the, the same music is set as a tango, which feels like an event. I don't know what else to say about it, but it is one. Um, and also, at long last, we have been waiting for a droop sighting. Droop! And now we've got one. Droop! Droop, droop, droop. droop assemble. And all of our patient waiting has finally been rewarded with, wait, what's this?
3: And when I went to school, I was the teacher's
4: pet. What's the matter? Couldn't she afford a dog? Aww. Aww. It's the wrong droop.
1: Yeah. I appreciate that someone was trying to make droop happen.
4: Yeah, E for effort. I mean, it's hard to complain when your character is being performed by Jim Henson. (laughs) That's a, a pretty high bar to set when Jim Henson just won't do. Elsewhere at the dance, Chekhov's balloon guy is back, and uh, he's about to ruin Mildred's day. Or uh, rather, it is George who is about to ruin Mildred's day and then laugh at her about it.
1: It's interesting that you're focusing Mildred and not the balloon guy here, but let's play the clip. <laughs>
4: uh, Mildred, would you mind if I pop the
3: question? Oh, why, of course not, George. Thanks. <laughs> oh, shut
1: up. <laughs> George is a murderer.
0: I think it's been pretty clearly established that these balloon people survive
1: the explosion of their heads. He, I found it very upsetting.
0: Or that they
4: just show up to the dance to to die?
1: Maybe. Jeez. We should
0: probably say that this particular balloon guy has a big question mark in place of a face. Right. And that's why when he's
1: popping the question, he pops the balloon And, guy. and George is inexplicably i mean inexplicable because it's a show um dancing with a pin in his hand
4: <laughs> as one
2: does we'll, we'll get into it uh, even more with Mildred later but man Cleveland is on their worst behavior this
4: yeah,
1: week yeah it's rude
4: yeah speaking of which uh we have the panel and that was where i wrote down like another fucking panel <laughs> how much longer is season 1 it is cute when Kermit introduces everybody that they have Piggy. He says, noted Chantuzzi, which is adorable.
1: <laughs> We've established that he doesn't know French after the raconteur yeah. <laughs> joke.
4: Noted Chantuzzi and Black Belt Holder. I, now I want to incorporate Chantuzzi into my vocabulary. I don't think anybody's going to think better of me for it. Um, it sounds
0: like a dance from the 60s. that, <laughs> Like know,
4: the Wachutzi. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the Chantuzzi. Um Piggy here is performed by Richard Hunt. And Sam is introduced as our resident Grouch. Sure. Uh, performed by Frank Oz because Sam gets to have his performer consistently maintained. Um, Mildred is there with all of her titles. And then we have travel agent and author Clara Cartwell, who is played by Candice Bergen in a, a pith helmet. Is that what she's wearing?
1: Yeah, I think so. It's like a safari okay. outfit situation
4: yeah that that seems like what's happening um Mildred's performer here is Dave goals whom I don't think we've seen as Mildred before she's been performed by Richard and Frank and sometimes by Aaron Oscar is credited on the on the DVDs and uh yeah Mildred just can't catch a break she won't even They won't give her the dignity of just having one or maybe even two performers. But uh, I'm going to assume that today's Mildred is not canon because she, uh, speaking of uh, misguided attempts at feminism, I don't know. Telling Piggy to lose weight is not a misguided attempt at anything. It's just mean. And it's Uh, not one. Oh, no. I I told myself I wasn't going to repeat any of her insults, and then I just repeated them. Uh, It's the feminism episode. (laughs) Uh, let's let's stop talking about uh, non-canonical Mildred and uh, talk about Candace Bergen uh, tittering at Sam's cultural illiteracy and then proceeding to ask him out.
3: For example, I had a friend who never went anywhere, lived in the same town for over 30 years. She was so
2: unsophisticated she thought Marcello Mastriani was an Italian soup. <laughs> <laughs>
3: You mean it isn't an Italian soup? <laughs> and he calls himself a world traveler? <laughs> no, no, wait. I have been to restaurants where I've ordered Marcella Mostriani and I've gotten it.
2: Really? What did you get?
3: A swarthy, good-looking man sitting in a bowl.
4: <laughs> <laughs> and then, I sent him back. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he makes sure to add this, like, no homo, oh, I sent him back. <laughs>
0: I didn't take it as no homo. I took it more as like no cannibal. (laughs) (laughs) He's an eagle.
2: I love this mid-Atlantic Catherine Hepburn thing that Candace Bergen's doing. Just a weird character detail. Yeah, I was charmed
4: by it. Uh, I wanted to add that thanks to that one line about Marcello Mastroianni and thanks to Rolf saying, you bet your Marcello Mastroianni one time on the Jimmy Dean show in 1965, uh, now, Italian film star Marcello Mastroianni has his own page on the Muppet Wiki, and so does Pie the dessert, and so does the fictional character Murphy Brown. No, bless the Muppet Wiki. They are not only helpful; they just they keep delighting. Uh, let's get to the the inevitable conclusion of the. Clara-Sam flirtation. Uh, do you
3: really like me without my rug? I do. Are you busy later? Oh, no, but I could, uh, we could wing out somewhere.
4: It's just very cute. Very cute. We've got a talk spot where Candice Bergen is attempting to photograph Kermit, and she's interrupted by Sweetums.
2: This is a great camera. Mm.
4: Oh. <laughs>
3: I don't, I don't know. I've tasted better.
2: <laughs> Kermit, he ate my camera.
3: You're lucky. Last week he ate the guest.
0: Cute.
2: It's a cute show. <laughs> it is a cute show. She's wearing an outfit that I would wear tomorrow if I had it. It's like black, black jeans with like a gauzy thing. Yeah, yeah, she
4: looked very artsy and professional at the same time. I'm into it. So, meanwhile, the Swedish chef is cooking up some spicy, spicy, hotsy-totsy, chili, saucy, Uh um, It is not quite spicy-spicy enough, and he adds some spicier pepper, and smoke comes out his ears, and his hat flies off, and that's the bit.
0: This was a perfect Swedish chef bit, because... It was fast, and it was funny, and then it was over. Like, sometimes Swedish Chef can go on a little bit too long, and this one did not.
4: I don't mind the Swedish Chef's antics or the food's antics. This kind of felt like a bit of a nothing chef moment. Because, I don't know, steam came out of his ears. That's a joke.
0: Can you make steam come out of your ears?
4: No. I can't make a cake attack
0: me either. I'm just saying like sometimes Muppet things are about doing neat things with puppets. That's true.
2: It did remind me of a time that I was at a taco place with a bunch of friends and they had one of those like almost like challenge foods on the menu where like, you know, most things have like one pepper bite or two peppers. And this one had like seven peppers. And so we like ordered this one spicy taco and so that we all could like have a bite of it. And uh, somebody asked me to describe what that tasted like. And I said, it was like an elevator was going up in my face. (laughs) (laughs) So I think if I had had eaten more of it, maybe steam would have come out my ears.
4: The taste of regret (laughs) or, or of an elevator. (laughs) It's a very good description. So we've got a veterinarian's hospital sketch. And here again, we've got Behemoth whom we met, Last week when he pied Sandy Duncan in the face. Last week for our listeners and many weeks ago for us. Uh, he's on the operating table and at the other end of the table from his head are human shoes with legs. So I guess uh, he was he was a full body character last week and now he's both ends of a body character. <laughs> anyway, he's here for a stomach ache, uh, which Dr. Bob picks up a mallet and promptly provides
1: the U.S. medical system, ladies and gentlemen.
4: Yeah. Oh, gosh. Uh, Dr. Bob does not get a chance to provide a sore throat because he finds Behemoth has a frog in his throat.
2: This
3: man has a frog in his throat. Are you certain? Positive. (laughs) Very funny. Just see if this dumb doctor sketch ever gets on the show again. (laughs)
0: That's it. That's the whole bit. <laughs> yeah. <it's laughs> Look, I'm always happy when Kermit and Ralph are in a scene together, although it does just make me angrier when we get second-string Piggy.
4: Or fourth-string Mildred.
0: <laughs> I just wanted to draw everyone's attention to the fact that this scene opens with Piggy
1: abusing nitrous oxide. Oh yeah, I definitely made a GIF. <laughs> <laughs> I have noticed that when, when they do the the two-character by the same performer thing so far, it's either been in a song, which is all pre-recorded, or it's it's been very short, as opposed to like a panel sketch. And I wonder if that's harder. I mean, I also don't know why the, the puppeteer performing couldn't also do the voice, then they could dub it in later, um, which is certainly how they would do it now. I don't know what they were doing then. But, you know, Kermit has... Two lines in the sketch, yeah.
2: hasn't it? Consistently, when there have been two, uh, always been Jim at this point. Did we have a Frank? We
1: had a song with with two Franks. Okay, um, but the songs are always pre recorded anyway, so it doesn't matter as much.
4: Yeah, I don't know what their criteria are or who's making that call. That like, well, we've we've got to pre record this one, or like, well, we'll just throw it to another performer.
0: Yeah. Well, it also seems like there are certain Muppets who are only ever performed by their performer, and certain Muppets who are uh, more able or willing to be handed around. I, I, you know what? I think it's just it's gender breakdown, right? Like, I don't think there's a single male Muppet that we see have multiple performers. Is is there? Mupp- Am I wrong? I mean, Droop. Droop.
4: Droop's been. <laughs>
0: How do we know Droop's gender?
1: <sighs> <laughs> no, I knew I that you were going to say it as soon as it came out of my mouth.
4: <laughs> I mean, that's a fair point. I, I hmm.
0: Like at least of characters that, that have appeared, you know, as ongoing characters yeah. in the Muppet Show. And as much as we love Droop, I don't think he's in that category. No. Have Floyd or
1: Zoot been passed around at all? I really don't know. Not that not that we know of. Right. It sort of famously will happen later on Sesame Street with Elmo, but that's years and years right. and years away. <laughs> so
4: and not once well, yeah, he became a main character. Well, he was well, but he had already been and then in, recast.
1: But I think
0: But he had he had been he had been named and appeared as Elmo with Richard Hunt performing him for a bit before Kevin Clash yeah. took over,
1: I think. I mean, Piggy's sort of still in process of becoming a main char- character, but I think. And but by, by this point, by this point, she's yeah, pretty firmly I established. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, she uh, is
4: a noted shantuzi.
1: It is true. At, at at this point, it is weird to hear Richard Hunt's voice coming out of her mouth,
2: especially when you consider that it, it's an actual running bit at this point that Gonzo barely gets stage time, and yet Gonzo is always Dave goals. I just don't think the the piggy thing holds water.
1: Yeah. Listeners, if anybody knows the history of this, let us know.
4: Or just has opinions about it.
1: Or that. We love opinions.
4: Yeah, we have so many. <laughs> uh, we have one more canonical element. Do we have any thoughts from our Yay correspondent this week?
1: Well we have some clips, so maybe we do. We get we get, just we right get two variations in the opening this week
3: it's the muppet show with our special guest star miss candace bergen woo! and it really makes me happy to introduce to you miss candace bergen
0: woo! so a woo and a wee <laughs> this reminds me of um on how i met your mother when they had the woo girls <laughs> Like Kermit would be a great woo girl.
2: I also want to point out how relatively relaxed Kermit sounds this week in his two intro guest star bit. Cause like for like three or four weeks there in a row, it was increasingly more frantic and terrifying.
0: (laughs) (laughs) He's practically crooning this week.
2: Yeah. So I I don't know, you know, if, if he has found some sort of, you know, acupuncture, uh, who knows?
1: Probably Drugs.
2: He does yeah, more. yeah, it's a 70s.
1: Yeah, Candace, yeah. Variety Candace brought him <laughs> some over from the uh, SNL set. Oh, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah.
4: But yeah, he does this little swagger dance thing to get on stage to introduce the guest star. He does seem more at ease with it.
3: I think I ought to see a doctor.
0: Why do you say that? getting to like the show. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Muppeturgy. Join us next week for our discussion of the Avery Schreiber episode when we will be joined by our very special guest star, Anthony Strand. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Muppeturgy or on the web at muppeturgy.com. If you like what we're doing, please spread the word. If you don't like what we're doing, keep quiet. Our theme music was composed and performed by Christy Bauer. Our show logo was created by Todd Brian Backus. And this episode was edited by me, David Levy. Uh, we just like when. There's subject-verb agreement. Nope. (laughs) Help me out here, someone. (laughs)